0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice.
1: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, Haven Pell is joining me again. We're going to be talking a little bit about the pandemic and some concepts that we think are going to apply going forward. We were both struck by another presentation by Melvin Castagnetti, which is a political consulting firm in D.C., which tries to track voting patterns and predict the future with regard to politics. But it seems like every time they do, they seem to have some things that spill over to society in general and political life and economic life, too. Haven, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Well, let's dive right in. You and I both saw their presentation, and I'll have links on it in the show notes. It's voluminous, and we could probably take four hours going through each slide and thinking about it. But one of the things in the initial section that they talk about is a little bit of a review of how unprepared the United States turned out to be for this type of pandemic, or for shorthand, natural disaster, what did you happen to notice within the slides?
0: Well, I thought it was very interesting. They had a whole series of Time magazine covers going back to 2003, and they were going on at more or less annual, biannual, biannual intervals, and they skipped a few years. And there had been a fairly steady drumbeat of SARS, bird flu, avian flu, H1N1, wearing masks in 2009, and finally, 2017, warning, we are not ready for the next pandemic. Then they had Bill Gates's now famous TED Talk from 2015, which, again, is one of those things one wishes one had listened to. And finally, I thought, interestingly, the worldwide threat assessment from the director of national intelligence from 2019 that discusses what was then the very unsexy issue of public health and an epidemic and so forth, and nobody was getting very enthusiastic or interested in the idea that really the two parties should fight it out over ventilators. That was not something that was going on at any of those periods of time, and therefore it did not get the attention that we might have wished that it had happened.
1: One thing that we were talking about in advance of this podcast was the concept that it's tough to get the government to focus on the things that matter in advance, and that's not to say everyone has a crystal ball and we're going to be able to pick out long-tail events well in advance of them happening and preventing the unpreventable, but you raised a good point with the idea of recreational government or governing toward controversies that are in many ways, ginned up versus taking a longer view and governing toward longer-term outcomes and defending against very difficult situations. And I guess one that I can think of that may be coming down the pike someday is when the asteroid gets too close to the Earth, and what are we going to do about it? And why didn't we plan for this before? But where did that come from from you? I liked the idea. And you you sort of look at all sorts of controversies that are out there that, to me, have a very Either short shelf life or a very small demographic that they appeal to, and it sweeps up governmental decision making all the time.
0: Well, I'm lonely in the view that the things we tend to focus on politically are things that the two parties can raise money on. You can get people fired up about immigration or guns or abortion or a whole variety of different things without too much difficulty. Those are issues that the seeds fall on fertile soil. They sometimes may not be the most important issues as we look at 50 or so days of being locked down and an economy the economists cover this week is quite clever in the way they show what a 90% economy is going to look like. In other words, if you leave out all the discretionary stuff, you still have quite a lot of the economy left. But There are lots of people who are very highly dependent on the kinds of spending that go on. So we do this in politics because you can raise money on getting people to be fired up about some big issue. Think of anything that you can get CNBC and Fox News to fight about. And that fills up the tin cup. You can't fill up the tin cup on preparedness for an epidemic. That isn't going to get people very excited. And there must be, I'd hate to think how many countless thousands of other issues you would hope that the government is looking after, and they may or may not be doing it well, but they don't get any attention because nobody can sell them as issues.
1: One of the worst jobs, I think, in government is head of Homeland Security. You never get the credit for something not happening, but boy, are you, you are front and center in the crosshairs if something bad happens and plenty of Monday morning quarterbacking that happens when you're doing the best you can to try to keep all sorts of bad outcomes from happening. For sure. And at least
0: Homeland Security can take credit for some of the things that it does well. Imagine being in the intelligence world where you can never take credit for the things that you may have done well, and you only get blamed for the things that you wish you had done differently, or frankly, that the other guys just beat you, which happens. It's very difficult, but these unseen things that governments do are important, and it's easy for them to be underfunded, to be underconsidered, to be done poorly. Uh, to have certain areas become dumping grounds for less capable employees, there are all sorts of things that you wish were done differently when you see that uh, the consequence of their not being done so well.
1: So we're going to skip over part of the Melman Castagnetti. Uh, presentation where essentially they try to make predictions about the political future going forward. Uh, We covered that a little bit in our last podcast related to what happens if the election's delayed. And I think we cover big chunks of that anyway. So we're going to go to some other parts that I think bring up some concepts and some futurism that's worth commenting on. The first one is sort of entitled New psychology will drive new priorities, which by itself doesn't really talk a lot about anything in detail, but they sort of talk about what's happening before COVID and afterward. And on one bandwidth, they had the idea that the idea of efficiency was extremely important before COVID and that resilience is going to be the buzzword going forward. And that that applies to supply chains, healthcare capacity, the idea of innovation being more important than costs and inventories. I agree with that. I think that there's going to be at least a little bit of a sea change toward hardwiring the system to be able to withstand these types of shocks. People do not like being surprised. And the idea that we're going to have something work as best as possible and spend money to make every little incremental gain at the expense of fail-safes if big things go wrong. I think those days are behind us, at least for a little while.
0: Yeah. And there may be some fighting the last war that goes into that. But nonetheless, it does appear that there are some clear deficiencies in terms of resilience and that price may stop being the only thing that matters. And I think we, in a prior podcast, maybe even talked a little bit about, do you have to squeeze the last dime out of an Uber driver? Or can you be a little gentler about squeezing him down or squeezing your supply chain down? And I think people might very well come to a decision that they would prefer to pay a little more for reliability when reliability becomes the most important.
1: Well, another poll that they put out is the idea of interdependence versus self-sufficiency and that the trend is going to be away from global integration and sort of movement across borders and more toward having a stronger national industrial base and tighter migration. Again, something that I don't really find any fault with any of those statements. I could see how if the economy flips back quickly and somehow the pandemic is in the rear view faster than we give it credit for, much like the other pandemics that were listed in the New York Times, or excuse me, the Time Magazine covers, it may not be as pronounced as we had before.
0: In one sense, I hope it doesn't, notwithstanding the fact that arguably the World Health Organization didn't do as good a job as it needed to do. I agree with that. That isn't for me to say that we don't need one. I think that the areas where, let's imagine that other countries Have the same, the equivalent Milman Castagnetti saying, well, interdependence is going to decline and self sufficiency is going to rise. Then you get to a point where you have 200 countries basically going it alone. And I think that there remain some issues that are important to at least have a place where they can be discussed. And where people can try to sort of get together and say, do you think that this is a good approach for all of us to take? Because there are some things that you just can't stop at the edge of your country. And an epidemic is one of them.
1: I think all good points. We find ourselves agreeing with each other on this one. The next set of polls they had positioned against each other was the idea of leverage and risk versus margin and safety. And I think they really kind of go through the notion that regulation, bigger safety nets, the idea of stability that comes with having a bigger employer versus a startup, sort of understanding what liability looks like. They make a notion here on renting is going to be more popular than owning. And I'm not there on that yet. I think that for certain people, they view this as a buying opportunity. I think for other people who are scared by the notion of being a tenant and not having any long-term assets to their name or any sort of plan on that front. I'm not quite sure I, uh, with the study on that comment.
0: We've done something over the course of a number of decades that I'm not sure is going to turn out to be as helpful as we might wish. And that is that we have basically taken the concept of old age and we have pushed that down to the individual level. And there used to be defined benefit plans where you would retire, you had something called a pension, and you would get a check, and it was a little bit like having an annuity. And the companies decided they couldn't afford that anymore. So you went to 401ks, and people suddenly became responsible for their own well-being without being in any way qualified to do that. The vast number of people. Don't understand the numbers behind putting aside money for years when you can't work and how we're going to be able to deal. We're clearly going to have lots and lots of people as my generation retires, gets older, and more of them go bust. They are not going to be able to make it on Social Security. And that's going to become another big problem. they are going to be very empathetic, thoughtful stories about how that generation of people, oh my gosh, as if this was some great big surprise, except it really wasn't a surprise. All of that is going to need to be rethought, particularly now that we have whatever it is, I've totally lost sight of the number, but it's probably $25 trillion in debt. And if we think, that some way or another that needs to be paid off, probably inflation, you kind of need to rethink
1: what's important. It leads to something that they talk about in their next point, which is the idea that abundance, and I think it looks like abundance on the personal level, is going to be moved more toward an austere existence for individuals, that there's going to be more sacrifice, higher taxes, fewer services, things like that, as the government assumes more control and focus on the lifestyles and ability to provide services that are deemed necessary going forward. I think it's clear that now that we've sort of ripped the band-aid off here and the government on both sides of the aisle decided that it's time to spend, it's going to be very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle.
0: Well, it's interesting. And I should ask this question of you, since I'm not particularly involved in this sector and maybe the way to deal with this is to ask you. We talk a great deal about how many people are in the restaurant industry and how many people's jobs are going to be lost and how many restaurants are going to close and so forth. What I have heard less about, I am not much of a restaurant person, but what I have heard less about is, do people miss them? Are people who have now spent seven weeks without going to restaurants, Are you saying to yourself, oh, golly, I really wish I could go to a restaurant, or are you deciding you don't
1: care? Well, I'll give you my personal experience, and let's say that this is relatively representative of people like me. I think once the floodgates open, I think there's going to be a real emphasis on going out and seeing people and being amongst crowds. I say this once the floodgates open with a bandwidth of safety, whatever that means. But I think there is very much a pent-up demand And a recognition that there's a place in society for things like restaurants and bars that was completely taken for granted. And to have that stripped away, there's going to be a push to go back and do something on that front. I think it also, from a social perspective, I think those places fill some sort of hole for a lot of people. And this is very easy for a New York centric person to say, but I'm of the opinion that group events, there is going to be a huge thirst for them going forward. I think that's going to be pulled back by the fact that people are going to want to feel safe about their environment and that they're not walking into scenarios where they're either going to get infected or exposed where they weren't before or that they could be putting themselves a level of abstraction and their families at more risk, especially older people, by being in group settings. So I don't think there's pent-up demand. I think people very much want to be a part of that right now, but there's going to be a at least in New York, it's going to be slow to get back as people really understand what the disease looks like going forward.
0: So in other words, they may be scared, but they'd sure like to be back there. Is that kind of
1: where you're going? Yeah, no, I think that's a nice, succinct way of putting it. I think too, as it sort of descends on us, what the new normal looks like to me, the world is going to be 70% exposed slash infected by this virus. And we we are nowhere near the numbers as demonstrated by testing to prove that out. And I think a lot of the measures that have been taken to slow the virus, flatten the spread, have been done really to get us to that 70% infection rate without blowing up the hospital systems. And for most of America, I don't think that has anywhere close to have happened. In New York, I think we're kind of getting close to having gotten past the point where we're going to blow the hospital systems up. So I think we're a few weeks ahead of many people or many regions of the country that I think we're going to be willing to crack the door open a little bit more in in a thoughtful way as opposed to just opening the beaches and hoping uh, without having any numerical analysis or impact in some of the other places.
0: Yeah, We all heard for a long time that nobody knew what the denominator was. If you say, what's the ratio of people who die to people who got sick, and you don't really know who got sick, you don't have much of a fraction. And now it even turns out that we may not have as much of an idea of the number of people who died. And one of the things that I've been looking at lately is an idea of excess deaths. I mean, it strikes me that we are probably okay at measuring the number of people who actually died in a given period of time. It's a pretty civilized country. You know, you can't just die and bury somebody in a hole. you have to call up somebody or other, a mortician, and uh, they come along, and all of this ends up getting reported. So one of the things that they're observing is that forget about cause. Just look at this year compared to other years and they have a significant number more people are dying now is that caused by coronavirus they're not saying and i think that the key point is that they don't really know but it has to be telling us that it's pretty significant and the excess deaths is more than the coronavirus deaths that we know of so that led me to say huh Not only is the denominator suspect,
1: maybe the numerator is suspect as well. I agree with you. I think there's going to be real revisionist history on a lot of these numbers. And I caution people when they sort of look at this and said, don't let your life be ruined by everything that comes out this second, because there's going to be revisions. There's going to be out of the 10 deaths caused by coronavirus, did nine of them have other conditions We're seven of them going to die anyway, that type of thing. So there's just so many things we don't know about. If you run your life with every data point as it comes out, I think you can find yourself chasing your tail a little bit.
0: Well, I hope I'm not about to destroy the image of this as a family podcast, but I read a very interesting story this morning that was coming from the people who, shall we say this delicately, deal in the wastewater arena they deal in sewage and cleaning up that whole aspect of urban life or anywhere else. And one of the things that they have determined is that they can test broadly and they can predict the incidence of coronavirus often two weeks before anybody else can. And now that isn't going to do anything meaningful, first of all, for the individual. And secondly, it's not going to do anything meaningful in areas where there's heavy travel. It isn't going to make a difference. If you are busily doing these tests on Las Vegas and then somebody decides to host the Consumer Electronics Show, it's not going to help you very much. But if you have a low mobility community and you're a governor, you might want to begin doing some testing in your sewage system to see what to look for in the coming weeks. And I thought that, that was that was an interesting aspect that I had not thought of. I mean I think of this as a lung disease. I don't think of this as something that's would manifest itself intestinally, but apparently it does.
1: Right. A little audible here. We have slide three which talks about deglobalization and gaining momentum. We mentioned that in one of the previous ones. I think maybe we'll just do a quick comment there with The idea that things like U.S.-China friction increasingly growing, I mean, I think what they're really talking about here is that we're moving toward an area where nationalism is going to be on the rise. And that that leads to, in many ways, I, I sort of equate it to kind of a Cold Warish type environment in the 70s and early 80s before sort of multilateralism became a bit more possible. What were your thoughts on that?
0: From a sort of uh, an acceptability standpoint, a shooting war is not a good image. It's not something that civilized countries want to be doing. So other ways of getting your way with another country, and the one that comes to mind is economic sanctions, those tend to increase because we can do a lot more to harm an adversary in a way that's acceptable to one's own population. There's probably no country that has brought more people out of poverty in the last 20 or 30 years than China. And if we suddenly started saying well we're just not going to do business with you we're not going to invest we're not going to build plants we're not going to do any of those things that would be a fairly serious problem for them and if it was a kind of an economic we're not going to import your products we're not going to have anything to do with you basically we're going to push you back into being the middle kingdom that is not going to be a happy situation now to retaliate. They might steal every kind of intellectual property. If Apple has factories that cost billions of dollars that are located there, if you were them, you'd have to worry about having them taken away from you. There'd be all sorts of things. I mean, it's not something where you just unplug a relationship with another country if from the situation that it is now. But you could certainly see a trend in which You moved more things back here. I mean, there will be a desire to rebuild our own economy. And I could see why you would want to reward companies that announced new factories in the United States as
1: opposed to over there. Votes and dollars are two different currencies, that's for sure. The next slide that they talk about is one that I'm really interested in, is the idea of freedom's trade-offs and that how we're going to be re-examining what that means. They bring up four examples. The first one being, should a COVID vaccine be mandatory? And especially for kids, 72% think it should be mandatory, parents deciding 25% an idea of using cell phones to contact, trace the virus. 57% aren't comfortable, 35% are. The idea of limiting deceptive speech on platforms, 61% say yes versus 30 who say no, which to me is really, I don't know if stunning's the right word. I'm not stunned by it, but I guess dismayed that the First Amendment is so easily served up on a platter in this poll. And then the other one is imposing national quarantines. And 75% of people do support it and 19% oppose it. Uh, and given that we're in the eye of the hurricane right now, I'm not surprised by that. One other concept that I think is interesting is the idea. You may have to have, quote unquote, your papers as to either your immunity or a vaccination against the COVID or any other disease in order to work, given the proximity of things. And I think That is a brave new world. We talk a lot about you've had a credit check or different qualifications. We may be lurching forward to that, as I call it, the Gattaca scenario, where even your genetic predisposition toward disease could be a disqualifier. And I'm not quite sure we've seen that yet in American society. Well, I
0: had a brief run of thinking about this from the context of what are you being told to do? Versus what are you choosing to do? And so I was trying to take all of these things like vaccination of children. Yes, that helps your children. It also helps them not to spread it to someone else's children. And the someone else's children have an interest there. Whatever you want to call that interest, it exists. My inclination is that the public health benefits are so obvious from vaccinations that I don't really find myself all that sympathetic with the anti-vax people. But I was trying the idea of saying, well, it's okay. You can choose not to be vaccinated, but other people can also choose to, to shun you and that you are not allowed in certain areas. Or you, For example, maybe you can't go to school on that particular one. And you make it such a draconian choice that the person says, well, okay, I choose to be vaccinated. I'm not being told to vaccinate, but did you really have a choice? And I really think that that was the flaw in the argument that I was endeavoring to make, and I sort of backed away from it. I mean, the same is true of if you turned location data sharing over to others, you could be given some privilege to be allowed to go on about your life if you chose to do that. And if you didn't, then presumably life would be more restrictive. But again, I think that's the same problem. I also think on that one that we don't have the best track record of treating those kinds of things as the consumer might understand they were being treated. The idea that everything you're doing is going into some shaded computer screen in Fort Meade, Maryland, to be looked at, and then you could be scrutinized. At least people believe we've done that. And I have no reason to say that we haven't done that. And it's too bad now that you could do something that would be meaningful, that that does loom into people's consciousness. Deceptive speech, First Amendment, boy, there's some stupid things that get said that are clearly harmful and so forth. But maybe it's just the price of doing business.
1: Yeah. Every time I sort of think about what are we willing to trade to give up? I go back to the the idea that never let a good crisis go to waste because I think authoritarianism is so not in the United States DNA that if you get going a certain way and you demand total power and control and statements like Trump says, well, well you know, I'm in control and you know the federal government runs everything here, people get their hackles up real fast. And even Trump walked that back because I think there's just something, again, in the DNA that says we don't want that. And I'm hoping that, you know, if the country's sort of veering toward veering, but sort of incorporating more sort of MMT concepts or more socialist attitudes towards healthcare, which may not be a bad thing, that that doesn't erode sort of that anti-authoritarian mindset that's taken a long time for this country to, you know, it was, that's it's what it was built on and what it's been developed over time.
0: I was talking to a guy the other day who's a contemporary of mine. We were talking about how different generations are often defined by whatever the crisis was in their period of time. For me, Vietnam War it happened in the year I graduated from college. So there are a whole series of crises that are viewed to be defining for a particular generation and the idea that i brought up with my friend was how come we don't define generations by how well things were going and how it let their resilience atrophy and his response to that was you mean like the last 75 years and he and i are both 74. so from 1945 to now has gone pretty well. And have we lost some of the self-reliance that we might have? How are people, if you're looking at all of these four things, they're all things that are being done to you or for you. And there doesn't seem to be the equivalent of what are people doing to or for themselves. And that's not what Mr. Bruce Melman had in mind when he put this slide onto his deck. But I think it's an
1: interesting idea. We've got a little shortness of time, so I'm going to skip a couple of slides and go to the last one, which I think is interesting and talks a little bit about the mindset of sort of where things are going to go politically in this country and directionally, some of the attitudes that people are going to take. And the idea was that the initiative is going to accelerate away from Washington and it's going to go to the to the states, to the municipalities, and that people in a sense trust them more. The federal government Has had various misfires and sort of putting together things like PPP and other programs to get things up and running and that to get to essentially to turn a battleship around the federal government seems to have you know tangled into some seaweed along the way and that performances by Governor Cuomo and other local leaders have really garnered a lot of notice and that people in a sense trust the local activity a little bit more what are your thoughts on that because I think that's something that's going to be a definite trend but it's something that I think could snap back to the federal program very quickly.
0: I love the idea of federalism. I love the idea that it is perfectly okay for Wyoming to do something in one way and for New York to do it another. They have totally different densities and population. They have different industries. They have different all sorts of things. And they can look at problems in different ways, including philosophically different ways. And I think people definitely are more attuned to what their state officials are doing and they're more willing to say, well, you know, this is my mayor or this is my county sheriff or this is my state governor and I'm more willing to put up with it if I don't necessarily completely love it than I would be if it were coming from Washington. Washington is more easily depicted as evil. I think that there would be an extremely salutary trend if it were to occur of trying to decide on every single thing that government is trying to do, what is the lowest level that it could be done at? Is this something that could be done entirely at the village or town level, In the case of the city of New York, at their level? And I think it would be an, a wonderful development, whether Washington is willing to give up the power to tell everybody what to do is a whole different thing. And I think Washington is gonna try hard to resist it. And not least because the congressional oversight committees that oversee this or that activity that the federal government does provides, those are very valuable seats for congressmen and senators to hold because it provides a lot of fundraising opportunity. And so if you suddenly said this activity doesn't happen in Washington anymore, there are 50 states that do it one of the aggrieved people is going to be a senator or a congressman who used to sit on the committee that oversaw that activity and used to get nice dollops of campaign money from the people who had an interest in it. And he's not going to be happy. And he's going to try to resist it. But I think maybe if there was enough of a view that Washington had fumbled, then this would happen. And I, to just make one point. I don't think of some of these things as political fumbles. It's not that one party did badly when the other did well. It's that some issues were just entirely neglected. There are no abundance of Democratic ventilators or a surplus of Republican ventilators. Just nobody was paying attention to ventilators at all. And that is a failure of government before it becomes a failure of a political party. Although that's not the way it's going to be depicted. It's going to be, you know, everybody's going to depict it as a failure of the party that they don't like.
1: As we start to wind things up, I think we've talked a lot about a lot of conflict and a lot of things that may be construed as negative. There are reasons for hope. And there's some things that have come out of this that are extremely positive. And I'll start in reverse order from what we planned before. The first one, I think, is that even in its own ham-handed way and in a way that has created all sorts of conflict needless and otherwise, government eventually figured out that there was a massive problem and stepped up to the plate fairly quickly and in a big way, at least a big dollar way. That's not to say everything was delivered in an organized fashion. That may not even be something we should expect anymore, but it feels like the government did, has tried to do this and to just unilaterally, in a sense, shut down the economy, is not a small undertaking.
0: It is absolutely not a small undertaking. And it harks a little bit to my friend and I talking about 75 years of prosperity. We've become, in a way, spoiled brats, or my generation has. And the idea that suddenly you should be able to snap your fingers and have whatever it is that you wish you had It's a little bit silly. I mean, I can't think of what other thing you might want the government to be being prepared for right now. You mentioned an asteroid, but there surely is something. And nobody is asking the government to be prepared for that now. They're interested in, you know, vaccines and tests and those sorts of things. Everybody's attention is focused on that. And the other branches of government that are supposed to be working on whatever the things are that are not happening now are also important. And I think that our expectations for the ability to turn on a dime were probably too high. And we should have been more tolerant about the idea that, hey, wait a minute, science doesn't care whether you're happy with how fast it's going. I mean, people are working very hard. I heard a guy talking from the Cold Spring Harbor Research Laboratory. He certainly sounded like an extraordinarily sophisticated man. And I have every sense that the scientists are doing the best that they can, and it's probably pretty darn good, but it's not up to what people have for their finger-snapping expectations of fix this now. I want to play golf.
1: Right. Just, and I'll group these other two together, you know, the idea that Americans are stepping up, just to view the healthcare industry and the workers have set aside all sorts of Considerations and are just stepping up to fix everything from treating people to the drug companies putting a full effort into creating vaccines and treatments and so on. It's great to see. And the spillover effects have been quite significant. I mean, I think in New York, the the small but I think nice gesture at seven o'clock when everyone sort of goes to their windows and celebrates the sacrifices that. The healthcare workers and the people who are dealing with the supply chains and the grocery store folks are, I think it's something that this country does step up to do when the chips are down.
0: It is lovely to see people who don't often have much time to be in the limelight. It is lovely to see that happening. Teachers who are trying very hard and individuals who are trying very hard to reflect a concern for their community and so forth is terrific. And how people are doing that. If you were ranking performance, the individual level seems to me to be higher than some of the more organized levels.
1: I'd agree with that. And the final drop in the coffee cup here is the idea that the innovators are stepping up. I mean, you look at companies like Zoom, who, you know, to a lesser extent, Skype and Microsoft Teams and others, it's fundamentally going to redefine how work and education get done. I think the impact is we're not going to know how much of an impact it turns out to be. It goes to everything from Humana and Medtronic, AT&T, Walmart, as far as provisioning and Home Depot and all the different cable systems and wireless networks, which basically, if we didn't have this in place, I mean, can you imagine this going on back in 1992 before the internet was anything? I think the damage would be a significant multiple of what it is. And there's so many negative stories and small businesses are really getting hurt. But there are pockets of positivity out there on the business front and innovation front where if we can get a lot of people to pivot in that direction, we might be able to really save a lot of not only jobs, but help people have a positive trajectory going forward.
0: Well, and it may be that one of the things that ought to happen is to invite the federal and state and local governments to outsource solving some of the problems that we expect to have in the future. If we don't do a good job managing for low likelihood, high consequence events, hand that problem over to somebody who could do it and say, look, I'll give me a contract for this amount per year and I'll make sure that you're ready for this particular eventuality. And the more we're open-minded about who does it, the more we might be able to put people back to work when we decide it's safe for them to go do that. In terms of bringing more jobs back to the United States, let's invite the private sector to do a lot of the things that we expect government to do, but do it on a contract basis.
1: Well, it's one of those quotes, if you want to predict the future, create it. And I think the idea that if we take the initiative internally, it's going to help lead to better outcomes. And I think what you talked about really is that big ask that we're looking for, which is if we could get more cooperation between the public and private sectors, we're going to be able to move bigger mountains as we go forward.
0: Yeah. And what we were talking about a couple of podcasts ago, when we were talking about how companies want to be viewed going forward. It seems to me that being viewed as helping to solve a government problem or a problem that one might have given to government to put on their plate would seem to be a real positive.
1: Well, I think we've taken up our allotted time here. Haven, thank you very much. We've gone around the world probably six or seven times with this conversation, and we probably could go on for another three hours, but covering a lot of good topics and hopefully giving some people something to think about as we push forward. And we thank the Melman and Castagnetti group for putting together an interesting and thought-provoking presentation.
0: It was uh, great fun, as always. I love having these conversations with you, and I hope our audience likes them as much as I like doing it. So thank you very much, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this
1: podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time
0: on Wealth Actually.